Hello and welcome to CBS Radio Mystery Theater from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater presents... If you had a mystery to solve, and you were given your choice of the greatest detectives in the entire world, whom would you choose? I took a little poll of my own, and most of the people I asked had no hesitation in naming Sherlock Holmes as the man they'd most like to help them. So, I must assume that it would come as a shock to hear of someone who didn't want the help of the world's greatest detective. Dr. Huxtable, when I learned that the purpose of your visit to London was to enlist the services of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I was shocked. But, but, Mr. Wilder, the police have failed. His grace is by no means convinced that the police have failed. But I cannot understand why you object to using the services of Mr. Holmes. There's a great deal you can't understand, Dr. Huxtable. Suffice it to say that we neither need nor want the services of Sherlock Holmes. was adapted especially for the Mystery Theater by Murray Burnett from the A. Conan Doyle classic and stars John Beale. I'll be back shortly with Act One. Unfortunately, the crime of kidnapping seems never to go out of fashion. Historically, it reaches as far back as the ancient Greeks and Romans. However, I didn't know until recently that Sherlock Holmes was once called upon to solve a sensational abduction. Holmes' good friend Watson called it the case of the vanishing herd. quarters of Baker Street have had some dramatic entrances and exits, but none more sudden and startling than the first appearance of Thornycroft Huxtable, M.A. Ph.D. After his first thunderous knocking, the door opening and closing behind him, he took one step forward and collapsed almost at Holmes' feet. Quick, Watson. I'll get a cushion. You fetch the brandy. Yes. If it's your diagnosis that that's what our visitor needs. Well, I, I'll check, Holmes. Here's the cushion. Uh, right. What's his illness? Oh, absolute exhaustion. Oh, possibly mere hunger and fatigue. <laughs> I, I think some biscuits and milk would be better uh, than brandy. Uh, oh, dear me, gentlemen. Forgive this momentary weakness. Uh, see, Mr. Holmes. I left the school to ensure that you come with me immediately to Mackleton. Uh, dear Dr. Huxtable. I, uh, how, how do you know my name? <laughs> it's elementary, sir. He took your card from your pocket when he went to your aid. Oh, for which I, I do thank you both. But I'm, I'm quite recovered now, and we don't have much time if we're to catch the next train to Mackleton. I'm afraid that's out of the question. Have you heard nothing of the abduction of the only son of the Duke of Holderness? The ex-cabinet minister? Exactly. Uh, excuse me, sir. 
What have you to do with the abduction? My dear Watson, Dr. Huxtable is the headmaster of one of England's most exclusive schools. Uh. It's only logical to assume that the boy was taken from his school. We, we tried to keep it out of the papers, but last night the Globe printed some rumors which I thought might have reached your ears. Well, I'm well aware that the Duke is one of the great men in the kingdom. Oh, and one of the wealthiest. His grace will hand a check for 5,000 pounds to whomever locates his son. Watson, pack a bag. We're accompanying Dr. Huxable to the north of England. Yes. Excellent, excellent. You relieve my mind, Mr. Holmes. And you, sir, when you've finished with your nourishment, will you tell me how it happened and what you now have to do with the matter? And finally, why you come to me three days after the event to engage my humble services. Oh, but, but you told me you hadn't heard of the abduction. Uh, so how could you know it took place three days ago? The state of your chin and the growth of your beard gives me the date. Now, finish your biscuits and milk, and we'll hear the story on the way. Mr. Holmes, you seem to be familiar with my school, the Priory. It's the best and most selective preparatory school in England. <laughs> but I felt that it had reached its zenith when the Duke of Holderness informed me that he wished to enroll his son and heir, Lord Saltmire. And when was this? Uh, three weeks ago. The boy was charming and soon adapted and was extremely happy. Which was not the case at his home, huh? Well, uh, it is an open secret that the Duke's married life hasn't been as happy as one could hope. But the Duchess left Holderness Hall for the south of France uh, about a month ago. Uh, the boy sided with his mother and was certainly discontented, which uh, was the reason for the Duke sending him to my school. Hmm. And he disappeared he on... was last seen Monday night. His absence was discovered on Tuesday morning. His bed had been slept in. He dressed himself fully before going out, and his room was in perfect order. There was no, no sign of any struggle. You've been very remiss in not coming to me sooner. However, it can't be helped. We can continue with this on the train. at all, Mr. Holmes. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure I've told you everything, but is it enough? It's enough to raise some very curious questions, Dr. Huxtable. Uh, uh, I agree, Holmes. And my biggest question concerns the missing German professor, Heidegger. Uh, Heidegger. Uh, that's the chap. Holmes, don't you think it's suspicious that he turns up missing the same day as the lad? As I said, Watson, it's curious. Dr. Huxtable has assured us that there was no contact between the boy and Professor Heidegger. Oh, none whatever. The boy wasn't taking German, and so far as I know, they, they never even exchanged a word. Mm -hmm. That's all very well, but it's more than a coincidence that both he and the boy disappeared on the same day. Don't you agree, Holmes? Yes, Watson, I'm in complete agreement. It's much more than a coincidence, and one which we'll look into when we get to the school. Gentlemen, the Duke and his secretary, Mr. Wilder, are in my study here at the school. And I should like you to meet them. Of course. And follow me, please. Uh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. 
His Grace the Duke of Holderness and Mr. Wilder. I came this morning, uh, Dr. Huxtable, too late to prevent your starting for London. Prevent me, Mr. Wilder, from starting... Precisely when I learned that the object of your visit was to invite Mr. Sherlock Holmes to undertake this case. His Grace is surprised, Dr. Huxtable, that you should take this step without consulting him. Well, surely, Mr. Wilder, my, my seeking out Sherlock Holmes... Could... You're well aware of how His Grace feels about notoriety and that Mr. Holmes' reputation is worldwide. Well, I agree with Mr. Wilder that you... Dr. Huxtable would have done wisely to consult me. But since Mr. Holmes is already privy to what has occurred, it would be absurd not to avail ourselves of his services. Uh, Your Grace, at the moment I assume you have received no ransom note? <sighs> no, sir. Excuse me for the reference, but uh, it must be asked. Do you think the Duchess had anything to do with the matter? Why, I... Uh... Uh, do not think so, no. Uh, one more question, Your Grace. I understand that you wrote to your son upon the day this incident occurred. Ah, uh, no, I wrote the day before. Exactly. But uh, he received it on that day. Aye, so I'm told. Uh, was there anything in that letter which might have upset him or induced him to run away? Certainly not. Did you post that letter yourself? His Grace is not in the habit of posting letters himself. This letter was with the others on the study table, and I myself put them in the post bag. Thank you. How many letters did your grace write that day? Oh, 20 or 30. I have a large correspondence, but surely that is somewhat ir irrelevant. Mm, not entirely. For my own part, I have advised the police to turn their attention to the south of France... Now, I've already said that I do not believe the Duchess would encourage so monstrous an action. But the lad is strong-minded. And it is possible that, aided by the German, he may have fled to her. And now, Dr. Huxtable, I think we will return to the hall. <laughs> the Duke and his secretary had left somewhat abruptly, Holmes and I were shown to our rooms, and shortly thereafter we met with Inspector Richardson of the local police on the lawn underneath the windows of the missing Professor Heidegger. I've uh, long been a great admirer of yours, Mr. Holmes. When I can, I try to fashion my methods after yours. Well, thank you, Inspector. I take that as a compliment. What do you make of our mystery here? Oh, no question but that the lad and the professor, this uh, German, are connected. I agree. Oh, they went off together, I'm certain. I've been told that uh, only the bicycle belonging to Professor Heidegger is missing. Ah, uh, that's so. The boy had no bicycle. And it's quite certain that there's no other bicycle missing? Quite. I'm surprised that you haven't hit on the answer by now. The bicycle was a blind. They hid it somewhere and went off on foot. Excellent, my dear inspector. But um, weren't there other bicycles in the shed where the professor kept his? Several. Wouldn't someone desiring you to believe that they'd ridden off have hidden two bicycles rather than one? Oh, I suppose. 
suppose he would. But, but, but Holmes, you agreed with the inspector that the two were connected. And so they were, Watson, so they were. Oh, but how, Mr. Holmes, how? That's only a theory, Inspector. You shall have to wait until I can prove it. But uh, I'll give you a clue. The lad, young Lord Saltmire, went off fully dressed, correct? Correct. Now let me call to your attention, Inspector, that the professor's rooms face the same way as the missing boys. And the professor went away only partly dressed, since your investigation showed that he'd left his shirt and socks on the floor. Uh, but, Mr. Holmes, what is that supposed to prove? I suggest you check out Professor Heidegger's eyesight. <laughs> spent most of the evening poring over a large ordnance map of the neighborhood. This case grows upon me, Watson. Come over here like a good chap and look at this map. Mm. Now, here's the school. Now, you see this line? It's the only road past the school. Yes, yes. It runs east and west. Yes, very clear. Huh? Well, we can take it further, my good fellow. By a happy chance, I have proven that no one passed along that road after midnight on Monday night. We have the word of a constable and an innkeeper. But, but can you be sure of this, Holmes? Definitely. The lady who runs the inn was up waiting for a doctor. Oh. And the constable never left his post at the crossroads. <laughs> so, Watson, we can say the fugitives never used the road at all. Uh, but the bicycle... Quite so. I say they must have traversed the country to the north or south. Now, if they went south, they'd encounter a number of tilled fields with stone walls dividing them, which makes a bicycle impossible. Uh. But uh, to the north is a great rolling moor intersected with paths. A cyclist doesn't need a road with the moor at the full. Come in. Oh, Dr. Huxtable. I say we, we, we have a clue at last. Thank heaven. Inspector Richardson found the boy's cap. Where? In the, in the van of some gypsies who camped on the moor. They left on Tuesday. Richardson has the, has the police on their trail. Today they found them and the cap in the caravan. How do they account for it? Well, they said they found it on the moor Tuesday morning. Of course they lied, but either the law or the Duke's purse will get the truth out of them. So we can all sleep well tonight. <laughs> good night. He's right, Watson. We we'll both need a good night's sleep, since we have to be up and about with the sunrise to see if we can find the real solution to this mystery. The gypsies may be telling the truth. <laughs> Gypsies have had a bad name. I've tried to do some research to discover whether or not it's deserved, but it's difficult to find any definite statistics since the gypsy people are such fierce individualists. I think we'd best leave the answer to Sherlock Holmes and his encyclopedic knowledge when we return to Act Two shortly. Sherlock Holmes knows that Arthur Conan Doyle was, in reality, a physician. They also know that he started out as a practicing doctor and only turned to writing to augment his income. 
However, I don't think I've ever heard any of the thousands of Holmes fans ever question why Doyle made Watson such a naive bumbler and also a physician. Was this really his opinion of the medical profession? I find this a fascinating question which ought to be investigated by some fan of the Holmes saga. just breaking over the Priory School and the Northern Moors when Holmes was at my bedside shaking me awake. Wake uh, up, Watson. Wake up. Uh, There's tea or cocoa ready in the next room. Uh, I've already done the lawn and the bicycle shed, uh, but I must beg you to hurry, for unless I'm much mistaken, we have a great day before us. I dressed hurriedly and joined Holmes, and we struck out on the Rosset Peaty Moor, intersected with a thousand sheep paths. I say, Holmes... Isn't it late for us to expect to find any traces of their passage since so much time has elapsed? Ordinarily, you would be right, Watson. But the map showed a watercourse across the moor. In some parts, it even widens into a morass. At that part, I expect to find some evidence to support my theory. <laughs> Do you think the German professor was in league with the gypsies? Well, you may recall, Watson, that I asked you to think about the eyesight of this Professor Heidegger. Oh. What has that to do with anything? My dear chap, just look at the facts. The professor's window faces the same way as the Duke's son. Hmm? The professor was known as a night owl. In his room, his socks and shirt were found. Evidence that a man had dressed in haste. Hmm. Now, Watson, I submit that Professor Heidegger was looking out his window on Monday night and saw the lad climb down the vine and slip away into the night. Hmm. The good man immediately dressed hastily threw on anything that came to hand, climbed down the ivy outside his window, got his bicycle, and rode after the lad to bring him back. Oh, it's Jove, Holmes. That's amazing. Sheep. Sheep. Nothing but sheep seems to have been here. Oh, uh, here are some tracks that aren't sheep. Not sheep, Watson, but not the marks we seek. These are cow tracks. Uh. You see, we're not going to find anything. Huh? We're temporarily checked, I'll grant you. But there's another morass down yonder, and a narrow neck between... Oh, what have we here? <laughs> you, you, you've hit it again, Holmes. We have it. Those are the tracks of a bicycle. A bicycle, certainly. But not the bicycle. I'm familiar with 42 different impressions left by tires... This was made by a Dunlop with a patch on the outer cover. Huh? Heidegger's tires were Palmer's, which leave longitudinal stripes. Huxtable was very positive on that point, that Heidegger used Palmer's. Huh. Well, this, this is the track of a boy, then, eh? It's uh, possible, if we could prove that the young lad had a bicycle in his possession. But this we have totally failed to do. You see, of course that this track was made by a rider going away from the school. And we shall follow it backwards before we go any farther. We lose the tracks when we come out on the hard ground. Uh, Holmes, I, I, I see the suggestion of a spring over there. Excellent, Watson. Let's see if we can pick up that track again over where the ground is damp. Here we are again. It's still moving toward the school. Oh, dash it. 
It's no use, Holmes. It disappears as soon as the ground gets hard. And the cow tracks cover it. Uh, it's useless to continue backwards. Let's return to the morass and see if we can't pick up some other clues. Is it possible, Holmes, that the professor changed tires deliberately in order to throw us off the scent? Watson, that's a truly brilliant idea. And a criminal who was capable of such a thought is a man with whom I'd be proud to do business. But I somehow doubt this is the case here. Come, Watson, back to our swamp and let's hope for some luck. It was wearisome work systematically surveying the edge of the sodden section of the moor, and I confess I was beginning to doubt Holmes and his theory when I heard a cry of delight from him. Ah, the palmer tire! He is here hiding us, sure enough. <laughs> I congratulate you, Holmes. But I fear it won't lead very far. Why do you say that, Holmes? Oh, well, we shall see. Observe, Watson. Our rider is now undoubtedly forcing the pace. Hmm. Look at this impression, where both tires are clear. See, that one is as deep as the other. Which means... That the rider is throwing his weight onto the handlebar, as a man does when he's sprinting. By Jove, he's had a fall. Oh, there's a side slip. I think not. Watson, look at this clump of gorse. I say, blood. Bad. Bad. It's turning ugly. Very ugly. Now stand clear, Watson. Not an unnecessary footstep. What do I read here? He fell wounded. He stood up. He remounted. He proceeded. But there are no other tracks of any kind. There are tracks of cattle on this side path. Come, Watson. Let us push on. search wasn't a very long one. The tire tracks began to swerve erratically. A gleam of metal caught my eye among the thick gorse bushes. Out of them we dragged a bicycle, palmer tired, one pedal bent, and the whole front of it horribly smeared with blood. I think we have our unfortunate Professor Watson. Right here. Give me a hand oh, and I tell see. me the cause of death. Yes. Well, I'm sure you didn't need me, Holmes, to tell you that the man died from a, a frightful blow on the head. There must have been an extraordinarily strong and courageous man to go on after receiving such an injury. Watson, we've progressed this morning. We've picked up several clues. But before we can proceed... We must separate the essential from the accidental. Uh, I'll be blessed if I know which is which. You do know. Now, let's go to the beginning. The lad was completely dressed. What do you deduce from that? Well, that he planned to leave and went off on his own free will. Capital, Watson. And now to our unfortunate German teacher. How did he leave? In haste. He saw something from his... Window, or by Jove, he must have seen the lad leaving. He went after him to try to bring him back. Exactly. But now we come to a critical part of my deductions. What's the natural way for a man to pursue a small boy? Well, to run after him, of course. Of course. But the German turns to his bicycle. Why, Watson? I simply have no idea. Because he saw 
that the boy had some swift means of escape. Ah, the other bicycle. The one with the patched Dunlop tire. Perhaps. It's most certainly a possibility, but let's continue. Our courageous German teacher meets his death five miles from the school. Mm. He's killed by a savage blow to the head, delivered by a vigorous arm. So, our young Lord Saltmire must have had a companion in his flight. Mm, my thought exactly. Yeah. Yet, when we survey the ground around the scene of the tragedy, what do we find? A few cattle tracks. Nothing more. So, another cyclist could have had nothing to do with the actual murder. Nor, indeed, can we find any human footmarks. Holmes, this is impossible. A wise remark. As I stated, it is impossible. Therefore, I must have gone wrong somewhere. Can you suggest any fallacy? The gypsies. Don't forget the gypsies. Are you suggesting that they have supernatural powers? They can use a caravan that doesn't leave tracks? And also their tribe leaves no footprints? Leave me at my wit's end. Not to worry, Watson. We've solved worse problems. We still have material. It's up to us to use it. Now, we've exhausted the palmer. But let's see what the Dunlop with the patched cover has to offer us. We picked up the track of the Dunlop and followed it for some distance. But the moor soon rose into a long, heather-tufted curve, leaving the watercourse behind us, so no further tracks could be hoped for. We last saw the tracks, which could have gone on to Holderness Hall, the stately towers of which rose just some miles to our left. Or to a low grey village which lay in front of us. Well, Watson, shall we toss a coin? Head to the left and tails to the right. I don't know about you, Holmes, but I could do with some refreshment. Tramping about in the moors gives a chap an appetite, you know. <laughs> Let's head for the village then, Watson. There must be an inn. As we approached a somewhat squalid inn with a sign of a gamecock above the door, Holmes suddenly grasped my shoulder and groaned with pain. Oh, oh Watson. Here, my, my ankle. All right. Hop oh. over to the landlord sitting in the doorway. Just help me. There. Thank you, Watson. And how are you, Mr. Reuben Hayes? Who are you? And how did you get my name so pat? It's printed on the board above your head. So it is. You're a sharp one, ain't you? Well, I can read if you consider that sharp. I don't suppose you have such a thing as a carriage in your stables? No, I have not. I can hardly put my foot to the ground. So don't put it to the ground. This is really rather an awkward fix. I don't know how I'm going to continue. Neither do I. The matter is very important. I'd gladly offer you a sovereign for the use of a bicycle. A a sovereign? Where do you want to go? To Holderness Hall. (laughs) Parents of the Duke, I suppose. I know he'll be glad to see us. And how do you know that? Because we bring him news of his lost son. What? You're on his track, then. He's been heard of in Liverpool. They expect to get him any hour. I'll help you take the news to the hall. Thank you. But first we'll have some food. 
Then you can bring the bicycle around. I told you, man, I haven't got one. I reckon I have two horses as far as the hall. We'll talk about that after we've had something to eat. stone flag kitchen. To my astonishment, Holmes sprang up and walked to the window. Holmes, your ankle. <laughs> A miraculous recovery, huh, Watson? That ankle was for the benefit of our gracious host, Reuben Hayes. <laughs> gracious is certainly not the word to describe that ugly. What are you looking for? The answer. It's out there somewhere I know. It's something I've seen and missed. Something about tracks. By George. Of course. That must be it. What's an old chap? I do believe I've found the answer. A. Conan Doyle also found the answers in real life. He did in the famous case of a man named Oscar Slater, tried and convicted for murder. Until Doyle wrote a book showing that the evidence which had convicted him, a pawn ticket for a possession of the murdered woman, had been pawned before she was killed. Slater was released from prison. I'll be back with the solution to our mystery shortly. book by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle on the Oscar Slater case got Slater a full pardon and compensation for the years he had served in prison before Doyle managed to get him released. So when Doyle writes of Sherlock Holmes and his colleague Dr. Watson, he's not without qualifications on the logic of deduction. I stared at an excited Sherlock Holmes as he stood over me in the kitchen of that squalid hostelry in the north of England. Quickly, he rearranged the silverware on the table as he spoke, driving his point home. Watson, you remember seeing cow tracks today? Yes, Holmes, many times. Where? <laughs> Everywhere. They were at the morass, on the path, and again where poor Heidegger met his death. Exactly. And now, Watson, how many cows did you see? Cows? Well, come to think of it, I, I don't remember seeing any. It's very strange that we should see so many tracks and never a cow on the whole moor. Watson, look at the way I've arranged the silverware and some of your breadcrumbs. Hmm. Do they recall to you the way the tracks looked out there on the moor? Well, I, I really can't say. But I can. I can swear to it. I've been blind not to draw my conclusion before. And what is your conclusion? That it is indeed a remarkable cow which walks, canters, and gallops. I tell you, Watson, it wasn't the brain of a country innkeeper that conceived a trick like that. The coast seems to be clear, save for that lad in the smithy. Let's slip out and have a look in the stable. There were two rough-haired, unkempt horses in the tumble-down stable. Holmes raised the hind leg of one of them 
and laughed. <laughs> old shoes, Watson, but newly shod. Old shoes, but new nails. Mark that, Watson. <laughs> this case deserves to be a classic. Let's go across to the smithy. You two infernal spies. What are you doing prowling around in my barn? Tell me that now, eh? Why, Mr. Reuben Hayes. <laughs> One might think you were afraid of our finding something out. We've been having a look at your horses. But my ankle is so much better, I think I'll walk after all. It's not far, I believe. Uh, so on two miles to the hall gates. That's the road to the left. convinced that this Reuben Hayes knows all about it. A more self-evident villain I never saw. Yes, Mr. Hayes does give that impression. But then there's the matter of the cows. The vanishing cows. We must always keep that in mind. But I think we need another look at the inn in an unobtrusive way. Let's turn off at the road here and come upon it from the rear. Come, Watson. Let's scramble up this hillside. I, I say, Holmes! Holmes, look! Look there, along the road from the hall. The cyclist. Down, Watson. Get down. Yes. Stay quite still. Good. Let me take a look as he goes past. I, I can see through these bushes, Holmes. Why, it's the Duke's secretary, Mr. Wilder. So it is. And riding as if the hounds of hell were at his heels. Come, Watson. Let's see where he's headed and what he does. We scrambled from rock to rock, making our way to the top of the hill, to a point from which we commanded a view of the road and the inn. And by the time we reached this vantage point, Wilder had disappeared. But his bicycle was leaning against the wall near the front door of the inn. Suddenly, Holmes nudged me. Mr. James Wilder. There he is now, at the door. I see him, Holmes. I suggest we go down and have a closer look. The bar is on the other side. Quite so. These quarters are for what one might call the private guests. Now, what in the world is Mr. James Wilder doing in this den at this hour of the night? And who is the companion who comes to meet him? I cannot say. At least I'd like a look at the tires on Wilder's bicycle. Let's go quietly over there. Right. And, and now a match. Yes, yes. There's our patch, Dunlop. Yes, at Holmes. Someone has lit a lamp in the window above us. I must have a look through that window, Watson. I can bend my back and brace myself against the wall. You think you can scramble up on my shoulders? Easily, old chap. <sighs> Come, my friend. We've done more than enough for one day. At 11 o'clock the next morning, Holmes and I were ushered through the magnificent Elizabethan doorway of Holderness Hall and into his crazy study. And there stood Mr. Wilder, courteous and courtly, with some traces of the wild terror of the night before still lurking in his eyes. I know you've come to see his grace, but I'm afraid I have disappointing news for you. His grace is far from well. He has my sympathy, but I must see the Duke. 
I believe he's in bed. I will see him there. You refuse Mr. Wilder, I told you I must see the Duke. I intend to see him. I will wait here if you ask me, but I will see the Duke. Very well, Mr. Holmes. I'll tell him you're here and insist on seeing him. Well, Mr. Holmes, I shan't apologize for keeping you waiting. I understand you demanded to see me. What is it? I thank your grace that I could speak more freely in Mr. Wilder's absence. The fact is that Mr. Wilder is my confidential... Your grace... If your grace wishes, I can leave. Yes, uh, perhaps you'd better go. Now, Mr. Holmes... Uh, my colleague, Dr. Watson, and I had an assurance from Dr. Huxtable that a reward had been offered in this case. I should like to have this confirmed from your own lips. Certainly, Mr. Holmes. If I was correctly informed, it amounted to 5,000 pounds to anyone who will tell you where your son is. Exactly. Uh, I see your grace's checkbook on the table. I should be pleased for you to make me out a check for 5,000 pounds. I know where your son is. And I know some, at least, of those who are holding him. Well, where is he? He is, or was, last night, at the Gamecock Inn, about two miles from your gate. I see. And uh, whom do you accuse? You, Your Grace? Mr. Holmes, how much do you know? I saw you together last night. Does anyone besides your friend know? I have spoken to no one. Well, however unwelcome the information you've gained, I'll be as good as my word and write you a check. I believe 5,000 pounds is the sum I owe you, is it not? I fear, Your Grace, that matters cannot be arranged so easily. There is the death of the schoolmaster to be accounted for. But you can't hold James Wilder accountable for that. It was the work of this brutal ruffian whom he had the misfortune to employ. I must take the view, Your Grace, that when a man embarks upon a crime, he is morally guilty of any other crime which may spring from it. Morally, Mr. Holmes, you're right, but surely not in the eyes of the law. Well, I... I appreciate your coming here before you spoke to anyone else. You will at least help me to minimize this hideous scandal. I want to help your grace to the best of my ability, but in order to do so, I must have absolute frankness. Mr. Reuben Hayes was arrested at Chesterfield on my information at 11 o'clock last night. You continue to amaze me. Well, I must say I'm glad to hear that Hayes has been taken... If it won't harm James Wilder... Your secretary? No, sir. My other son. Now it's my turn to confess amazement, Your Grace. Well, I see the time has come to conceal nothing. Mr. Holmes, I have two sons. James Wilder, illegitimate. And my legitimate son and rightful heir, Arthur, Lord Saltmire. I should certainly not like to sit in judgment on you, Your Grace, but... Mr. Holmes, when I was a very young man, I... I loved a girl with such a love as comes once in a lifetime. She refused my offer of marriage because she was a commoner and she felt that the difference in our station might harm my career. And where is she today? Dead, Mr. Holmes. Oh. 
And on our deathbed, I promised her one thing. To take care of our son, James Wilder. I have kept that promise. You seem proud of the fact, despite your knowing that he was responsible for the abduction of your legitimate heir. I only gained that knowledge last night after he'd heard of the murder. He confessed that he'd added a note in my last letter to Arthur, telling the lad that the Duchess wanted to see him, and that he, James, would arrange it if Arthur would meet him that night in the wood behind the school. And Arthur did, of course. Of course. It was then that James told my heir that all he had to do was steal out the next night and a man with a carriage would meet him in the wood and take him to his mother. That's why Arthur dressed and went off with Reuben Hayes. It's just unfortunate that the German saw him. It's also unfortunate that you didn't realize how your illegitimate son felt about your heir. I cannot understand... What James Wilder thought he stood to gain by this abduction? Was it to hurt you? I can't explain, Mr. Holmes. You see, James has always felt that it is in my power to break the entail. He also felt that as the eldest son, he should inherit my estate. I think he wanted to bargain with me. He'd give me back Arthur if I'd break the entail. He knew that I could never set the police on him, never. Surely your grace knows that you've condoned a felony. I have placed myself completely in your hands, Mr. Holmes. Just help me is all I ask. I, I think Watson and I can consider our little visit to the north a success. But uh, there's one small point on which I'd like some light. This fellow Hayes had shod his horses with shoes that counterfeited the tracks of cows. Did he learn such an extraordinary device from Mr. Wilder? Uh, No, Mr. Holmes, step this way, please. Now, look at this case here in the corner. Ah, I see that these shoes were dug up in the moat of Holderness Hall. Those shoes belonged to some of the marauding barons of the old days, and they were designed to throw pursuers off the track. Thank you, Your Grace. It's the second most interesting object I've seen in the North. And the first? Your Grace's check. I'm not a wealthy man. of the story you just heard that amazes me. And that is, it's the only tale by Conan Doyle that shows Holmes with an interest in money. After thinking about it, I decided it was because Holmes didn't like the way the Duke treated his younger son and was punishing him for it. I'll be back shortly. Not 
only did Sir Arthur Doyle prove his logical deductions in the field of real crime, but he also helped British intelligence. In World War I, he transmitted news to British POWs in Germany by sending what looked like ordinary books to them. However, he arranged to put needle pricks under various letters so as to spell out messages. But he started with the third chapter because he said the German censor would examine the earlier chapters more carefully. And he was right. Our cast included John Beale, Court Benson, Ian Martin, and Ray Owens. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams.